No, um, we're recording this session, so I'm hoping they don't, that doesn't pick up. I thought you said your yesterday didn't. Oh. All right, we're ready, guys. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Welcome, everybody, to the More Than Just Friends, the Do's and Don'ts of Interpreting Female Friendship session for the 2016 AASLH MMA Annual Meeting in Detroit. This Q&A is hosted by the Women's History Affinity Group at ASLH. I am Rebecca Price, President and CEO of Chick History and the founding uh, co-chair of the Women's History Affinity Group. And I will be serving as a moderator for this discussion. Thank you all for being here, and thank you to our two panelists, Dr. Susan Ferentinos and Lori Osborne. Um, I do want to let you know that in addition to this session, we will have a companion event this afternoon, a tour to Rochester Hills Museum, um, where we're going to tour the museum, and then we're going to have a breakout exercise to brainstorm on ways to interpret female friendship into tours based on the experiences at Rochester Hill Museums. And there are still a couple of tickets available, so that's this afternoon from 1.30 to 5.30. So I encourage you to look into that if this is something that's important for your site. The first half of this session will be a moderated uh, discussion between our two panelists, and then the second half will be Q&A from the audience. So I'm going to ask you to hold your questions until the second half of the presentation. And ASLH is recording this session, so I'm going to ask the moderators to please speak clearly into the microphones, and then I'll remind the audience, I'm sorry, the panelists to speak clearly into the microphones, and then I'm going to remind the audience that I will repeat all of your questions for the recording. So I am pleased to introduce our two panelists, uh, Susan Ferentinos. Uh, is, a, <laughs> is a public history researcher, writer, and consultant based in Bloomington, Indiana. Dr. Ferentino holds a PhD in United States history from Indiana University with a focus on the history of gender and sexuality and a master's of library science also from Indiana University with a concentration in special collections. Dr. Ferentinos is the author of the book, Interpreting LGBT History uh, at Museums and Historic Sites, published in 2015, right here. Uh, and it did win the 2016 Book Award from the National Council on Public History. Lori Osborne. <laughs> Lori Osborne is archivist at the Evanston History Center and director of the Evanston Women's History Project in Evanston, Illinois. And she currently serves as vice president for operations of the National Collaborative for Women's History Sites, uh, which works to increase the level of women's history interpretation at all historic sites. <laughs> She holds a master's degree in English literature from the University of Chicago and a master's degree in public history from Loyola University Chicago. Again, thank you so much for doing this. The wide success of ASLH's publication, Interpreting LGBT History at Museums and Historic Sites, the 2015 AASLH annual meeting survey responses requesting more LGBT sessions at conferences and contemporary events such as the legalization of gay marriage are all signs pointing to the high demand of this content in our society as well as public spaces and places of heritage. 
Despite this growing acceptance of homosexuality in our culture, broaching the topic on tours or authentically interpreting it in programming remains a challenge for many museums and sites. The subject of LGBT history incorporates many threads in its discipline, each one with its own set of nuances and challenges. This roundtable will cover lesbian and female friendship, and will allow for an in-depth discussion of the various implications and types of female friendships in American history with a focus on histories from the late 19th and early 20th century. So we'll begin our moderated discussion now. Boston marriage, lesbians, lovers, roommates, one of the biggest challenges with placing female friendship into historical context and much of LGBT history is the labeling issue. What it means to be gay now versus then. Susan, can you please give us a brief history of homosexuality and the, and the development of what we know as homosexuality as an identity and what this implies for labeling historic figures? Well, so the concept of homosexuality is actually a much more recent concept than uh, the behavior of people of the same sex uh, getting busy together. Uh, the, the psychological medical construction of homosexuality started developing in the late 19th century and um, really came to the United States and got a particular American flavor right around the turn of the 20th century. And so what this concept, what this construction brought to, um, to the experience of same-sex desire is that there was the idea that um, people who desired members of the same sex were a different category of person than people that desired members of the opposite sex, and that heterosexuality, which also developed at this time as a concept, um, was the norm. And so that is important to understand because if you're looking at people kind of in the early or mid-19th century, they're operating in a world that did not have this concept. And so that's one thing to keep in mind when uh, trying to analyze historically a particular historical agent's sexuality or behavior. And um, this, in the early 20th century, the concept of homosexuality was different than what we understand today as well. One very important piece is that early on, the what we understand as two distinct concepts were conflated. So gender variance, and um, an inability to fit into traditional gender roles or a refusal to fit into traditional gender roles and the desire for members of um, the same sex as one was were conflated in this concept called inversion. So um, the, the understanding from doctors and psychologists was that um, feminine women or masculine men were unlikely to be homosexual. And um, there were also class connotations to homosexuality and racial connotations. So the working classes and people 
of non-European uh, non descent uh, were much more likely to be put into this category of deviance. And so this is also important to understand, particularly when we're looking at um, the female partnerships that were labeled like Boston marriage or within the reform movement of the progressive era, most of the women in those relationships were white, educated, middle and upper class. And so they, within, even as the concept of homosexuality was developing, women in that category were largely not suspected of this type of behavior. They, they were like flying under the radar because of these class and race connotations and the conflation of gender nonconformity with, um, with sexual desire. So that's it in a nutshell, very brief, but. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Um, before we go to the next question, because uh, I think this is important because we'll, it comes up a little bit later on. Can you briefly kind of lay out kind of what is our 21st definition of what, um, when you identify as a lesbian, what that means post-gay pride movement and what it means to be a lesbian now and why that idea didn't exist back then as far as identity versus behavior. Okay, so um, first off, I talk about this a lot in my book, uh, definitions and terminology are a, a tricky thing that is by no means insurmountable, but, but you should definitely educate yourself um, in, in various ways. All of these labels and terms are used when you're interpreting LGBT history or the history of same-sex love and desire if you're looking at an earlier period. So today, lesbian generally means uh, a woman who is exclusively sexually attracted to other women. Um, and it doesn't imply really anything about that woman's uh, gender identity and how, how closely or far away she is aligning with traditional ideals of femininity. Um, in the early 20th century, as I said, lesbian implied somebody who was deviant. Uh, by definition, they were mentally ill and they were both attracted to members, uh, to other women, and, um, and uh, fighting against gen gender roles. They were masculine women or um, women who, like uh, excessively immature women who were kind of being led astray, like uh, immature feminine women who were being led astray by the masculine women, by the true inverts. And so um, you see that there's a lot of uh, powers that be <laughs> uh, structuring reality based on, uh, on certain assumptions and of course uh, class prejudice, race pre prejudice, and um, an, a willingness or a, an interest in adhering to a very traditional gender structure that at this time in the late 19th century, early 20th century was being challenged by uh, women becoming politically active and um, professionally active and becoming more educated with the growth of women's colleges. Thank you, Susan. Another important historical context to establish is what life was like for women during the period that we're talking about. Um, and women's behavior during this time that's very sex segregated society of the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
Lori, can you share a little bit about the life of women in question during this time period and the women that occupied the majority of this discussion on female friendship? Sure. Um, so as you can tell, we've decided to do spend a little time going back and, and understanding this time period and the changing, because we feel like this understanding this history is really important and there's a lot more detail on all of this in Sue's book. So um, I encourage you, this is an, important to understand um, this past because it really is different. Um, and so that's why we're taking a little time today to just dwell in that time period. But um, in the 19th century, um, and, er, and for centuries before, women's female family members were really the primary emotional support for them in their lives. And it makes sense given the kind of world they lived in, which is a very sex-segregated world um, and was for long, long time. So as the 19th century changes and develops, you start to see industrialization, mobilization increase. Um, women's family members, the primary relationship starts with their mothers and then of course sisters and sister-in-laws and mothers-in-laws and so the family network is really the, you know, their, their primary emotional system and support. Um, as the 19th century, things start to change. People's, they're not living where their family lives anymore. These female friendships that develop um, become the primary support. The language that women use to speak to their female friends in letters or describe those um, friendships in journals and diaries and other ways is very much the kind of language you, it's a very loving, even romantic kind of language. It's language we would not use necessarily with our female friends. Um, as we were talking yesterday, um, it's almost like we need, the, the words are familiar, but we need to translate them. They really have a different meaning. And it's part of that language of um, love and, and um, strong emotional relationships that existed for a long time. So this language starts to be um, used with their female friends. Certainly some of these female friends probably were intimate relationships. But we can't assume that based on the language that they're using. Um, we need to be careful about reading too much into that language or avoiding the language entirely on the other side. So it's, it, we've got to watch and, and, and understand the time period we're in and um, think about those relationships the way they thought about them, not the, about the way we think about them. But what we can know is that this female world is really significant to them. Um, this, this, the, these relationships really are important. And if, um, as we are saying in our, in our best practices, if it was important to them, it should be important to us when we're interpreting um, a site. Because these relationships, like anywhere, you need to talk about them if this is important to them. Um, so later in the later 19th, early 20th century, as Sue was saying, um, you start to see a shift. Um, there's more possibilities for women's lives. They start to move out into the world. These female friendships become working friendships as well. So they start to be professional as well as um, uh, personal relationships. Um, and they 
become true partnerships. Um, a lot of times this is for economic reasons. Women's wages are low enough at this time period that being independent and on your own and unmarried, um, you often need two wages to support yourself. So some of these partnerships are, are, are for economic reasons, but they're certainly for emotional reasons. And some of them start to be for more personal reasons, more um, intimate and sexual reasons too. Their attractions are there. They're starting, more professions are opening for women um, and this, um, so, and women are working more towards um, their own independence and, um, and women's rights becomes, of course, very important with um, the suffrage movement, um, the Women's Trade Union League, birth control movement as we're really moving into the 20th century. Um, Mary, I'm sorry, can I interrupt you on that point? Yeah. Because um, that's a good segue. Can you talk a little bit about um, women's institution building and that this is a time where we see a flourishing of women's coming together in groups and public spaces with colleges and universities right. and the leagues and that fits into that that intense female friendship right so these this female world moves from from just a friendship thing to really into institution building around an all-female world you get the women's christian temperance union you have the suffrage movement in the 19th century then you start to see women's clubs women's um um, organizations um, and and a real sense that we can operate in public if we're in this still within this all-female world we need this all-female world to give us a, a venue it gives us power and control um, but it's but it's moving more into the public realm in a significant way and this as Sue mentioned um, in, uh, causes a backlash, and you start to see this language of female friendship, This, the language we would read as romantic now, but they did not necessarily see it that way. You start to see this language being defined as unnatural, and um, and it it call it becomes suspicious language. If you're going to use this kind of language, you better be talking about a male partner. You can't use this language with your female friends, or you will be under question. And so you really see a shift at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. And what we have to remember is realize is that's the world we operate in. We operate in that post-question uh, world. That language wasn't unnatural to them, but it sounds like because we live in the world that defined it that way. So. Um, anyway, that's so is just it, a little... it's fair to say that that's that language that everyone, through our 21st century lens, we're going back now and scrutinizing that language yep. and looking for what could yep. be yep. more than yep. just friends. Yep. So that's just a brief summary of this time period. It's a fascinating time period and changing for women's lives. And, um, and we'll talk more about all of that as we go along. All right. Susan. Um, in your book, you cite the correspondence of Addie Brown and Rebecca Primus as a rare historical sample, rare in the fact that documentation exists and survives, um, of this type of intense female friendship between two African-American women. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges and maybe even some recommendations when in interpreting female sexuality and race and the different gendered experiences across race, uh, particularly when it comes to women of color and sexuality, again, during this time period of the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
yeah, so this is, um, I mentioned this correspondence between these two African-American women um, in the 1850s, 1860s, because it is really noteworthy. There's not a lot of um, evidence, particularly that early, of these types of very romantic, um, solid, emotional bonds uh, that have some physical component, whether it's you know sexual, what LGBT historians call genital, or um, whether it's simply uh, you know physical affection. Uh, but there is in the letters they reference uh, cuddling in bed and that kind of thing. Um, but, but that is very rare, extremely rare. And so that is I, I sort of mentioned it because it was a, unusual in my book. Generally speaking, it's much harder to find evidence, just in general, of um, African-American female friendships. This is partly a literacy thing. Um, this is partly just, the, it's more likely for people uh, that were occupied positions of power in society to have their, their records and their papers preserved. Um, but from what we can tell, this female partnership among reformers was less common among African Americans. And there could be a number of reasons for that. Um, one could be that uh, the, there is a much stronger, even within the middle class, there's a much stronger tradition of women working within African-American communities. And so the fact that a woman wanted to be a professional woman didn't necessarily preclude her from a heterosexual marriage in the way um, that it, was, it stood a good chance of doing for white women. And um, it could also be that, that African-American women didn't have the luxury of remaining unmarried and uh, partnering with another woman because as I mentioned earlier these emerging definitions of homosexuality were really um, had a very significant racial component and so um, almost by definition African-American female sexuality was con considered deviant from the medical by the medical establishment so so African-American women were assumed to be pr promiscuous were very likely to come under suspicion of being prostitutes um, and were much more likely to be defined as deviant in any number of ways including being an invert or homosexual and so um, that is a very important, the racial component of these definitions of sexuality is a very important piece. And it's also important for understanding white women's relationships because their whiteness is a crucial component of how they were able to form these partnerships and, um, and not be you know, ridden out of, and still be respected and professional women because they weren't being labeled as deviants and mentally ill in a way that um, women of color were far more likely to be. So whether the historical agents you particularly are dealing with, uh, regardless of their race, race is a very important component of understanding their emotional world with the relationships they had with other women.
Um, so our next question kind of deals with how do museums keep up with academia, scholarship, um, and then just the general public's desire to out historical figures, to claim these women as lesbians for the cause. Um, and in fact, um, in about two weeks, you can, you can pre-order it now, <laughs> um, there's a new book coming out on Eleanor. Uh, it's called Eleanor and Hick. It's about Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, Eleanor and Hick, the love affair that shaped a first lady. Um, and among many things, they do say that they were lovers. Uh, and it explores that lifelong relationship between the first lady and the AP reporter, uh, Lorena Hickok. So, and this, will go, this goes to both of you. How do museums and sites keep up with that kind of outside world and the scholarship, not just scholarship in academia and books, especially over the past couple of years, there's been, um, it's been prolific how many biographies have, have come out as people have gone back and re-explored um, these women. How do museums keep up with that? What do you think is, should be the response? Um, and especially for a public who, the public who wants to, to, to claim um, these women as lesbians. Whoever wants to go first and take that one. <laughs> I'll jump in. <laughs> um, I, I, I have a number of things to say, I think. Uh, one, <laughs> surprise. Uh, one is uh, that, you know, I, I understand it's easier in the ideal than in the day-to-day -day reality, but definitely if you're working at a historic site, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to keep up with the scholarship in the particular area your site is interpreting because, um, partly because uh, scholars, academics, kind of part of their job is to forward the way we think about the past and, um, and they can be a great resource for historic sites. Also, you run the risk of your visitors coming in, being informed by that, uh, that literature and you want to be able to re uh, respond and engage with them about that. I would also urge you to be aware of the distinction, particularly with history, of um, scholars versus writers for a populate, popular audience. And they're not necessarily mutual, mutually exclusive categories, but something that I find very fascinating <laughs> about history is, you know, it's a wonderful topic, it's great. And so um, a lot of the general public reads history and popular books in history, it's very interesting, are very seldom written by, maybe not very seldom, but are more likely to be written by journalists than, or uh, general popular nonfiction writers than actual people who have been academically trained in the discipline. So that's a topic of a whole other panel as to why that is. But do be aware that um, a journalist or a popular nonfiction writer who's not been academically trained in history, it might be more likely to be like tossing non-historically specific labels around and, um, and not being as rigorous with their sources as somebody who still operates uh, professionally in that academic discipline for what that's worth. Um, I do think that uh, certainly museums can't move as quickly as, um, you know, to respond to every single academic book that comes out and they're going to revise their interpretive plan in response to new scholarship. But I do think that being conversant 
in what the conversation is in your historical subfield that your site deals with um, can make sense and you can get a sense of what is like the outlier, somebody making an argument uh, that is not in keeping with the general tone of the literature, the general historiography, versus what over time becomes like a historiographical shift and most scholars are now understanding the topic that you also deal with in a particular way. With regard to Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, she's a specific historical figure, but she's just delightful. I mean, she could be a case study of, um, of all of these different threads going on. She, the height of her career is happening after the time period we're mainly talking about, but um, that early 20th, late 19th century, early 20th century is when she's coming of age, and so she's very much influenced by that earlier period. And just, we see female institution building, we see, um, Affection, uh, uh, affectionate and emotional behavior that we quite don't, don't know how to deal with and understand specifically. She actually, a number of her very close friends were in female partnerships together. So that's, uh, I don't want to take the time of our session just to be talking about one historical figure because we're trying to talk in generalities, but fascinating woman. <laughs> What do they do at the Eleanor Roosevelt site? Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you know how they're interpreting that at, um, sure. at Valkyrie? Sure, I've done um, just a tiny bit of work with uh, the Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site, um, which is also probably more popularly known as Valkyrie, uh, which was the name of her estate, which is on in Hyde Park on the uh, not too far, maybe a mile or so from um, Franklin Roosevelt's family house. Uh, but with Franklin's encouragement, Eleanor in the 1920s uh, built her own house uh, with a female couple, um, Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman. And, um, and the three were very close. They also started a um, kind of colonial revival, uh, bringing people back to work endeavor called Valkyrie Industries. Um, but it's very interesting. The, the three of them, like, uh, monogrammed towels with all three of their initials for, as they were setting up housekeeping together, and, um, and they were very, uh, very excited to be starting a household together. And there was a falling out among the three women in the 1930s. Again, that's very puzzling. It appears, it, it reads, at least to me and probably to most 21st century people, as a breakup. It's an extremely emotional falling out. And Eleanor, like, takes to her bed for three weeks. And, and, you know, and they eventually resolve enough to, like, be in the same room together. <laughs> but, uh, but it was not without effort and work. And it obviously was very wrenching. Do you know how the more. site interprets that story? Yes, they do to... interpret. They don't interpret it as a breakup. I, I'm adding <laughs> that. But they do talk very substantively about the female couple, um, Nan and Marion. They don't talk as deeply about Eleanor's relationships um, with Lorena Hickok or uh, with this couple, particularly Nan Cook. And um, But they're, they're working on it. That's actually why... Um, I was out at the site 
for a few days this past spring is because they're planning to do additional research in, uh, into Eleanor's life and they're, they're trying to think about what are the most salient questions that visitors will want to know about now. So, so they're in the process of reconsidering this, but traditionally they have not really gotten into Eleanor's sexuality so much. Well, that's a good segue to do a couple of case studies before we take Q&A from the audience. Um, the last question, and I'm hoping we can talk about the Polly Murray House a little bit with this one first, um, is in your opinion, and Lori, I'm going to give this one to you, um, should museums take a more progressive position on these issues um, and join the gender identity politics um, conversation of the 21st century when it comes to LGBT rights? Um, and, I, and if you could, if it's possible, yeah. talk about the new so, Polly Murray House. Yeah, this, um, I, I think it, it, you know, you have to be, once again, a good historian. And like Sue said, if, it, if it's part of the story of your site, yes, you need to tell the story. If the, like I said, the, the, if it was important to them, it should be important to you. Um, but you do have to figure out how to do it, and you have to be smart about your time period. Eleanor Roosevelt is right in the middle of that change and it's I think it would be really a challenge at their that site to know how to interpret it how to tell her story but Polly Murray is a little bit later Polly Murray is is entirely 20th century woman um, African-American woman um, activist for civil rights and women's rights the National Collaborative um, for Women's History sites um, is just now finalizing, in the final phases of um, getting a new National Historic Landmark um, created for her at this place. And it's really, I, I looked at the nomination, it's really a wonderful, wonderful story. And it's really wonderful that her life is being um, highlighted. Um, very, very important woman. I won't go into all of her biography because she did so many things. But one of the things she did as far as her gender, she was really sort of had this sort of fluid understanding, I think, of her gender. She never really came out as a lesbian. Um, she never identified herself really in any way that I, I have mm -hmm. seen. But um, she sometimes dressed as a man. She had relationships with women. She was a pretty public person in all her life and all these relationships. She didn't keep things hidden. She just didn't speak about this. It was her private life and it wasn't part of her public persona. Um, but there's an interesting moment that in a little bit earlier and she may fall into it um, in some ways where you see the women's rights movement and is working towards legal and economic rights, but not sexual identity rights. This is the, and this, and Murray really falls into that legal and economic rights work, but not maybe in that sexual politics and in the world we operate in in the same way. So, so this is, She's still sort of in this earlier category, and, and it's very this interesting. This is a lovely photo of the Hover House, and then they did the, the restoration on it on the right. And then we, we were, you know, if you go back, we're kind of shifting time periods mm -hmm. here, but um, Jane Addams is a little, is another example of someone who really lands in the 19th century for almost all her, her 
adult life, but by the turn of the 20th century, is really one of the formative thinkers in this is in this all-female world, institution building with settlement houses and the settlement house work. It's not, those are not all-female worlds. They're certainly male settlement workers as well as female, but they really are residential, living, working communities, personal, professional relationships. She has very strong companion partnerships and working relationships and personal relationships with women. Um, and so her, the historic site in, in Chicago at Hull House um, is very um, much aware of all of that and really, but lets the visitors sort of decide in interesting ways. Well, so. speaking of Jane Addams. <laughs> yep. So... <laughs> Um, Susan, can you? This is a this is a really good case study, an example of what one museum did. Um, obviously, they're named for a very famous woman, um, and a, a lot of her biography comes up when we talk about female friendship. She had female she had female partners her entire life, and how do they interpret that within the site? So, Susan, can you speak a little bit um, directly about um, what the museum decided to do and interpret this part of of her biography? Sure. Within the, the museum setting. First off, do we have anyone from Jane Addams Hull House here or who's worked there in the past? I should say that I have not worked there. I've certainly visited and studied the site, but um, with that caveat, there's, uh, there's two really, well, there's so many interesting things going on with Jane Addams Hull House Museum. It's a really interesting museum. But two things in particular with regard to Jane Addams' relationship with Mary Rosett Smith, a woman that she partnered with and was together for over 30 years. And a relationship we don't know a huge amount about because Jane Addams requested that their uh, correspondence between each other be destroyed upon her death. Um, so one is this alternative labeling project, which happened some years ago as the site was trying to decide how to interpret their relationship. And they brought the visitors in, and they offered, they focused on one specific um, material artifact, which was a portrait of Smith. The painted, portrait up on the screen. Yeah, painted by um, artist Alice Kellogg-Taylor. And then they offered visitors three different labels and asked them to say which label resonated the most with them and gave visitors the opportunity to write their own label and put it on a, like a sharing board. And so one label um, identified Smith as Jane Addams' companion, direct quote, and, but it focused primarily on the painting as a piece of art and the artist um, who had painted it. A second label, uh, identified the, um, Smith as Adam's life companion, a, a quote, life partner, excuse me, um, and acknowledged the hypothesis that they're lesbians, but emphasized the, dif uh, the difficulty in, um, in precise categories. And then the third label um, identified Smith as Adam's partner, did not mention the word lesbian, um, but identified same-sex unions as a common choice for college-educated women of this era, and also included a romantic quote from one of Adam's surviving letters to Smith. And, um, and so visitors were able to, to decide and engage 
in that process, which I think is a very innovative, and particularly for this time, this was a number of years ago, um, was a very innovative approach to it. And although they did get some, the site did get some complaints saying this wasn't relevant to the Jane Addams story, her personal life wasn't relevant, or it was an inappropriate topic, most visitors really revealed an interest in learning more, and it was a, a point of connection for visitors. And then just very quickly, after that temporary project, the site now interprets their relationship in Jane Addams' bedroom, which is, is open to interpretation. Previously, it was administrative offices. And um, this portrait of Mary Rosette Smith hangs across from Jane Addams' bed, as it did during Adams' lifetime. And, um, and they present the evidence they have of this relationship without using the label of lesbian. This is the final label that they went with after they went through this project. Um, we are going to have handouts for you in the back, and there's a printed copy of this so that you can actually read it to see exactly um, how they put together the label to put. And it's, it's really sweet. I don't know if you can see it, but this is it right here under the, under the photograph. Um, so I'm going to go through one more case study, and then we're ready for um, audience Q&A. This is one, again, our time period that we're talking about, um, late 1800s, early 1900s. This is a woman, um, this is the Allen Austin house on Staten Island. Uh, she was a photographer. I'm not going to go into her biography because I want to share with you how they've decided to um, talk about it on their, just on their website. Um, I thought this was very interesting how they wrote about it on her website. One of their pages gives her full biography, which is very long, and I've just pulled out the parts where they talk about her relationship with um, Gertrude Tate, because I think it gives a very good example of one of the ideas that we're putting forward is, is when you're going to do this, you really need to let these women speak for themselves and use the words that they would have used to define their own relationships. And I love this example because they did that. And as you read through, you actually start to see this very beautiful, tender story come out. And, and the words, the history does all the work for you. And we can, if we need to, we can stay away from gender identity politics without having to go there. But it, it's pretty obvious. It's a beautiful story. So um, this is the first part. And it says, um, the last sentence says, she never married and instead spent 50 years with Gertrude Tate. Um, a rebel who broke away from the ties of her Victorian environment, Alice Austin created her own independent life. And if you are familiar with her biography, a lot of her photographs, she does a lot of gender bending and things like that with her uh, photography. So I'm going to pull out a couple of things again, which from her very long bio they put on the website. So this is one that describes when she met Gertrude Tate. And they were together for 50 years. They met when they were in their late 20s and early 30s. It's just, it's a lifelong relationship. And it talks about when they met, they traveled a little bit together. And then when Gertrude's um, younger sister and mother um, gave up their Brooklyn home, Gertrude lived with her family, is when she finally moved in with Alice Austin. And they again went historical and they chose the words that they could find from their documents. Um, and Gertrude moved in, overriding her family's appalled objections to her wrong devotion to Alice. 
to other things from their website. They talk a little bit about towards the end of their life um, when they didn't, weren't making a lot of money and they had to downsize and then rent an apartment, but then they couldn't afford that rent. Um, Gertrude's family um, offered to provide housing, but only for Gertrude. And then this, there's a break in this. this these don't go together. Um, but this is the very end about Alice and her death um, and that um, when she died, um, she just had a simple funeral service. Um, and then again, it decides, it, it, they choose to mention that Alice and Gertrude had wished to be buried together, but their families denied their wishes. And they also have on their website a photograph of them um, later on in life. And you can see the caption, Alice sitting with Gertrude. And they have chosen to use the word couple. And the couple stuck together through good times and bad. So we wanted to show you this example of going with the historical record, using the words that they would have described their relationship, which is very important. Um, because I don't think we ever want to disregard the health of these relationships and the commitment that these people had. And as Lori said, if the relationship mattered to them, it should matter to us. And to be fair to them, we should use the words that they described their relationships with. And, you know, when you see it like this, it paints a very um, strong, committed, beautiful story um, of two people who work together to build a life together. So I'm going to throw up their contact, uh, Susan and Lori's contact information, but we're ready to start taking questions for the audience for the rest of the session. Yes. I'll paraphrase to repeat that, but at what time period does it become, do people start to s suspect these either two women living together or is she single? She's single. And single, not married. Um, when historically do those questions start to come up that we start to question women who don't get married <laughs> um, or who live with other women? When, when does we start seeing um, society come come back on that. Go ahead. Did you want? Oh, yeah. okay. Um, well, there's actually a couple different uh, layers, I guess, of that happening. And one is, it was always a little problematic, like throughout this time period, if women chose not to get married. Um, but as they weren't assumed to be lesbian. Uh, that there were little whiffs of it, but it really begins to happen with these types of partnerships in the 20s and the 30s as part of, or well, uh, at least historians have argued as part of the backlash to suffrage. That, um, and in particular, there's, there's tons of historians who have written on this, but particularly Estelle Friedman um, is a good person to check out in this because she, she does LGBT history, but she also looks at progressive era women's relationships. Um, and so, but then in the 1990s, as part of sort of the 
the project of LGBT pride, um, at the time it was more common to call gay and lesbian pride, uh, there was a <clears throat> effort on the part of activists to claim historical figures to, in order to provide roots to the community. And in retrospect, <clears throat> excuse me, from a historian's perfect, uh, perspective, they, they, you know, they were painting with a very broad brush and, um, and they weren't really engaging with these nuances that we're talking about today. But I, I think to some extent that um, that has a historical legacy where uh, people, you know, who aren't immersed in this every day, um, who don't like deal in historical nuance, um, see that and they're seeing it through a 21st century lens and it's an obvious question to ask, so. Lori, just to expand on that, can you talk a little bit about, we were talking about it yesterday that I, when, uh, when the patriarchy started to really come down on these female institutions um, and decide when to do that. Can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, and, and, and Sue's right. I mean, if you're single and it's 1850, um, that's not a good thing either. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's uh, a woman unattached is not exactly approved at almost all time um, in women's lives, um, but you do start to see more women making a conscious choice and in some ways making it very publicly, I'm gonna be a teacher, I'm gonna be a doctor, I'm gonna, and if I get married, I'm not gonna be able to do the things I wanna do. And so you really see that building. And I think the statistics that Sue even mentions in her book, it's by the end of the 19th century, it's a dramatic number of women are choosing very publicly to stay unmarried. Um, and, and so, but then it's really in the shifting world of the early 20th century where um, you get a real sense of this mannish woman and the new woman is both sort of sounds like a good thing, the new woman, but it's a very suspect group too, um, and if you're actively involved in women's rights work and the suffrage movement, you know, you are, um, there's serious suspicion coming down, you people, you know, and, and, um, and then like, like I was saying earlier, if you're using this kind of romantic language, you better be talking about a man. Um, and so that really is an early 20th, by the 20s and 30s, you really see it. And, and, and uh, the change has settled in and it's, you know, it, it really is interesting to watch that changing. Would you say that was a reaction to some of the power and influence these women's yes. institutions yeah. were having on yeah. American society? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you definitely see that as power and, and influence grows, that is a threat. And the threat gets um, dealt with in various ways, including um, calling these women their lives as yep. deviant. So, yes. So I'm going to bring the story a little bit closer to to the present, well, my lifetime. So let's go back 40, 50 years. As people are leaving college, in my experience, it was acceptable for two women to take an apartment together. And it wasn't necessarily assumed that there was anything sexual going on. They just were economic 
they needed to have roommates. And many of us did that. But for two men to take an apartment together, I remember male friends saying, eh, people are going to think something's going on here. It's not just somebody else needs to pay the rent. So in there, it seems to me there was a double standard that women were allowed to live independently together, but men were not. And I don't know how that fact, somehow, that's going to end up factoring into historic site interpretation maybe 50 years in the future, but it's another side of the same question, I think. Do you see a double standard applied when two women living together versus two men living together? No, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> yes, I definitely, uh, I definitely do. I definitely agree. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with the control of sexuality generally. Like a woman who is unchaperoned is problematic to some extent even today. <laughs> uh, you know, think about like a single woman going into a bar is, is going to have a different reaction than a single man going into a bar. Um, but more historically, there is this idea that two women living together is a safer thing, that um, they're less likely to be being sexually promiscuous with men if they're together. And so it's partly just, it's partly an economic thing, it's partly a, a safety thing. And that's really, and true in the progressive era, uh, true on up through mid to late 20th century, and that's really fascinating because in many ways that provided cover for women who, uh, who were in sexual relationships or at least romantic emotional relationships together. And we're not saying that none of these women were involved in those types of relationships. We're saying it's, it's unlikely that all of them were. And uh, so, yeah, but again, it's, it, there, there is a sexuality component of it, whereas as it, um, society's concern for controlling male sexuality is less of an issue. And so a, a, a man living alone is, you know, the carefree bachelor, right? And, and there's not a whole lot of reason why he would need a chaperone or a, a partner, for either economic reasons or for safety reasons. And so it did come under more suspicion, definitely. I think I saw one in the back. Yes. Could you talk about the wearing of pants in society consumption? I'm sorry, can you repeat the that? The wearing of pants in society consumption? The wearing of, uh, by women? Yes. Um, pants. Trousers mm -hmm. in trouble. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Changing clothing, uh, the ideas around women's clothing, I mean, you definitely see that developing in the late 19th century, the whole idea of wearing bloomers to ride bicycles, things like that. Yeah, you definitely have a problem if you're, if you're, um, if you're, you know, your clothing isn't traditional, what's considered appropriate um, for that time. I'm not exactly sure. Um, the time period you're referring to, um, I, you know, this whole idea of being mannish and, and wearing what looks like men's clothing, I feel like that stays in place until the 60s. I can remember as a young girl, I wasn't allowed to wear pants at grade school. You know, I mean, 
So anyway, that's no, no, so. I do, I do believe there's a rule on the Senate floor. Has that been lifted about the women senators? And yeah. Well, I'll I'm, I'll take I'll answer that one because I'm just thinking of two examples. Um, one in our uh, close into our time period in the idea of bloomers and a lot of the early reformers wearing the pants to be less constricted so they can move around. And I just wanted to quote a historical um, historical record is um, that many of them, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, started wearing them, and they were mocked in the newspapers. Um, and I've always, I always think about that when I think about women's critique in current media and our images and what we wear, and even back then. Um, and there's a correspondence between Elizabeth Kitty Stanton and Susan B. Anthony where they talk about the pants. Um, and they're telling each other, like, you're going to give it up soon because it's not worth it because you're just going to get ridiculed off the stage. And both of them eventually end up giving up the pants. Um, I'm also thinking about Frida Kahlo. I worked at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And she goes through several stages in her life where she's dressing as a man and she cuts her hair short. And She's an interesting, obviously, topic for this as well. She's very interesting. She's very easy to talk about because she herself was so publicly open about her personal life and her sexuality. So she falls into the category where it's very easy to talk about Frida and her bisexuality because she did it. She's, so it's easy for us to do it because she claimed it. Um, she went through a period early on uh, in her teens um, and there's a fantastic photo of her with her family and her siblings and her father. And then there's a phase later on where she and uh, Diego Rivera have one of their many um, breakups and she cuts her hair again and starts dressing like a man and there's references that she's doing it because of him. So she does a lot of that as well. Um, and she's very aware of what she's doing with her gender and the pants and everything. But. And yet, yes? Along those same lines, there are also, um, you see photographs of groups of women in the early 20th century dressing up like men as a sort of a group thing. And it's, I mean, I've seen it in several different places. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like they're, they're obviously just doing it for the occasion, but they're still playing with that whole. The same thing is true for men too. Lots of uh, what we would think of as cross-dressing, I guess, but yeah, for events and you know shows they would do, and uh, yeah, yeah. So I guess if that, or the question is, Those, yeah, how much I, does cross-dressing play into this? Um, for women dressing as men? Uh, I, I have also noticed <laughs> these, these pretty common photographs, photographic evidence of um, women dressing as men. They're also, it's, I haven't noticed hundreds of them, but I have noticed a significant amount also of heterosexual couples that cross-dress at some point, you know, just for an afternoon and take pictures of themselves. I'm, it, I find it fascinating. I, it is mostly just a big historical puzzle to me. But I think particularly with, um, there's potentially two angles to look at it with. One is um, 
a kind of a carnival idea. There's in the 1890s, there starts to be drag balls where um, that continue on into the, into the 60s in this form of them, which is that pe people can get together, dress as the opposite sex, dance with whoever they choose. It involves both men and women. And that, is, that activity is condoned, like the police don't bust that because it's understood as a carnival kind of uh, for a night you're uh, dismantling social hierarchies or you're turning them on their head. And, um, and then as far as, it seems like many of the pictures of women dressing as men um, are related to like female colleges or they're, they're women that were educated in female colleges. And I think it might have something to do with like claiming, claiming a power they were coming into that had been previously in previous generations been um, restricted to men. And so it's, you know, I'm sure they would not have articulated that that, that way, but I think that's something of like, they're, um, they're excited about the possibilities before them and they're expressing that um, in, a, in a silly, fun, but also challenging to the powers that be kind of way. Maybe that is purely a theory of, of mine, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it, there's something going on with the photograph, and particularly the fact that um, they were doing it and recording it, you know, for yeah. posterity, and yeah. many of them survived. There's, yeah. it's, it's ripe area for research for somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll go here and then in there. Yes. Supply and demand. How does that <laughs> fit into? That's a great question because that is all about what you talked about earlier: homosexuality and that the evolution and when you see it. So there is a um, there is a very interesting historical phenomenon that say, there's much more record of same-sex. Um, activity, sexual activity in sex-segregated environments. So mining camps in the West for men, whaling ships, the military uh, for women, female colleges. Um, and personally, I, 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 it's not ringing a bell that like while men are at war, there is um, an increase in acceptance of this but definitely at female colleges and women that went on like into adulthood to work at female colleges, you find a lot of partnerships there. And it was considered quite, um, quite acceptable and normal to have crushes on, your on a female classmate and to have um, certainly while in school um, to, uh, to engage in a romantic relationship with another girl. And um, 
It was actually during this time in the first half of the 20th century, uh, it was the understanding of childhood development was that, it, that a homosexual phase was a, um, a, a common part of uh, adolescence sexual development. So younger girls, like until about 16 or 17, were expected to be um, romantically attached and attracted to other girls and boys to other boys. And that it w became a problem when they didn't get out of that phase. They became stuck in that phase. So. Um, what about other situations where, so for, for clarification for the recording, the question is, you know, what, um, periods when, it would there, when there would have been all female or all male um, situations, especially in early history. Um, can you speak at all about prison populations and how that sexuality kind of... Yes, other historians um, have, have looked particularly at prison populations, but another one is like uh, convents or seminaries is another place. And, right, and so that raises the question, is that just about opportunity? Is that about supply and demand? Or are same-sex environments drawing people who want to interact with members of the same sex and want to be removed from the pressure of interacting heterosexually? That is a, a, an ongoing question. Topic for another day. Yeah, yeah um, but his, um, historians have looked at, uh, particularly I think Reg Regina Kunzel, I think, has written a book about same-sex activity in women's prisons, mm -hmm. uh, it, historically. Yeah. It's a good question because the time period that we're talking about, since it was so sex segregated, we have these large groups of women working together, living together, and this is when that idea of these intense female friendships came about. Yes? Yeah, and, and as I sort of got, you know, was thinking about this um, and getting ready for this talk, it sort of struck me how much we assume that we know and how really we need to be careful because this really, especially the 19th century, um, is really a different time and we got to be careful. We got to be good historians, which actually makes it more interesting and more fun, um, but more challenging. Too. So, so the, okay, yeah. yes. I, well, I want to repeat what you said first, though. So, the, the confirming, you know, the idea of what we know now and the words that we know now didn't mean the same that they did back then. And to look on it through our 21st century eyes, we interpret and we see something different by our, our own definition. Yeah. So, do you think there's any risk in interpretation of, of almost going too far the other way and making this look like a golden age? Maybe it was a golden age, but that if, if it becomes potentially too 
to present day issues because as you've made clear in your comments today, right, this is only, these kinds of emotional spaces were only possible because of tremendous discrimination and structural problems for women's lives. Um, I'm not sure if I actually have a question in here, I guess, but just um, in thinking about I think in, especially early on in the historiography, it was very much a recuperative project, right? And so is there a risk that this becomes a kind of celebration, too celebratory of this moment as if, if that risks obscuring the other kinds of problems that we face? Yeah, so you're well, right. Let me repeat the question. Oh, so, sorry. Um, the question being, uh, are we celebrating this time period as a golden age? And if, if we encapsulate it into this time period, do we run the risk of it's over, it's done, and um, how did you phrase it? We, we can't look at the continuing problems. Well, we would, we would miss the kind of structural and power and economic forces that worked against women in this period. Yeah, so that we would miss all of uh, the economic uh, and society constraints working against women during this period. Yeah, and the reason, you know, the real fundamental reason you get the, this world, this all-female world, is that they have to do this in order to create room for themselves to operate in public. Um, and what's interesting is that they take full advantage of it and they, and they thrive in it and they love it. It is, but they are still operating in, a, in with all this outside pressure forcing them to create it. Now, within the world they create, and the boundaries get bigger and bigger. They're pushing, but within that world, there's a lot of room for a positive life and world. And they, and and they're, you know, excited and and you know they see the opportunities, but they also, you know, that world outside that's impinging and forcing is still coming at them. Yeah, so you got to do both, and that's the whole, like, we got to, you can't uh, go one way too far. You need to be careful that you're, you know, operating in, in as a historian and covering all your bases, which is hard. This is complicated. So, <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. So the question is, if you don't have a site named for a woman and you're not interpreting this particular time period, how, how can you write this very critical, very fascinating, very important um, period for women's history into a very broad narrative? Well, I agree with you that that is a different endeavor. And um, in some ways it's almost easier and in some ways it's more difficult because this idea of, you know, just present the evidence and use their own words to describe the relationship becomes irrelevant when you're talking in generalities. At the same time, you get a little more, um, you, you get a little break from visitors saying, well, was she or what, you know, were they or weren't they? And, um, and so, 
but I think it is very important to talk about this as a phenomenon because it was very widespread among the, the white middle class uh, female reformer set. And, um, and so, and its frequency in and of itself makes it significant. And it's also a way to really get at a very uh, chaotic and shifting point in US history, particularly for gender relations, but also all kinds of social hierarchies and relations are being questioned and, and challenged. Um, so I do think that, I mean, it can be, t it, I think even when you're talking about a specific person, uh, taking a step back and letting visitors know, placing that in a historic context to give uh, vis visitors a lens of it. And there's so many women that were engaged this, with this, it might be, that even in a museum, that's the hook, is an individual historical agent who's part of the history of your community or um, your state or whatever <laughs> uh, level your lens is as a museum that you can um, use them as a hook to introduce this larger concept, just like you use a Civil War soldier to, to bring in you know, the larger history of the war. Would you also recommend that if you can't go there because you don't have a historical figure, that this time period, instead of focusing on female friendship and sexuality, you focus more on the women's institutional building and yeah. that social movement as, as how huge it was to this particular time period and how so many things happened with groups of women doing these things versus one woman? Yeah, and that gives you the chance to, that gives you the chance to open up this bigger story. Um, you're from the Michigan History Center, is that right? Yeah, so, you know, there's all the women, um, or women's organizations and how influential from the little, the literary clubs, um, to the um, early benevolent societies, to the, you, as you move into the temperance movement and the suffrage movement, and then you get into women's clubs, and you know, that whole progressive movement over the um, 19th into the 20th century um, with suffrage and um, the, the political equality leagues or you know, whatever suffrage organizations, yeah. That's sort of the broader story that also tells you, lets you talk about the limitations as well as the uh, advantages that these provided. So, I think yeah. I have time for one more question. Does anyone have one last question? Yes. We've heard about Eleanor Roosevelt. What's the take on the fact So how how does any museum or site dealing with Eleanor treat that she was married and then any relationship she may or may have had um, was while she was married? I'm assuming that's your question, the, yeah. the, mono, yeah, the monogamy. The, well, was the, it an affair or was it not? <laughs> I know the question. Yes, she was married. Yeah, right. so Val, Val Kill doesn't really, you know, acknowledges that there was an extremely close uh, friendship between Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, 
that's how it interprets that relationship. So it doesn't challenge the monogamous ideas of heterosexual marriage. Uh, the, the inter one thing I actually find interesting is in both uh, the site where Franklin Roosevelt died in Georgia, his retreat, and at, um, the, at Hyde Park, which as bo both interprets Franklin's home and Eleanor's home, um, they do talk about, and at the, um, the Franklin Roosevelt Library, they do talk about this riff in their marriage that occurred when Eleanor discovered one of his affairs. It happened um, before much of his uh, political career. And they do talk about that as a turning point. And up until then, Eleanor was a very traditional wife. And after that, she kind of starts doing her own thing. And so that is interpreted, but it's interpreted in a very traditional infidelity, you know, poor wife done wrong kind of way, where I think there's potential to get into issues of polyamory and bisexuality um, with their relationship. But I don't know of any site that's doing that yet. Did, Paige, did you have a question? A general comment, and if you can respond to it, if you'd like to. Um, one of the things that as historians we are always looking for is documentation. We, we want to see it, we want to, to read it, we want to be able to understand it. Women are notorious for self-editing. Throwing your papers away, having them burned upon, you know, upon your death, um, taking your journals and ripping out pages or, or whatever else. How do you think that that is particularly impacting the field that we're trying to work in, especially when these things are happening in completely private spaces. And so a woman and her journal is a very private space. If we, how do we then, if we have access to it, how do we interpret it? And if we don't, how do we work around the fact that we don't have solid documentation? So the question is, knowing that women self-edit, burn their letters, burn their diaries, how does that play into our interpretation, especially when those diaries and letters are so personal, and then the topic of sexuality and what they may or may not be doing is so personal? How do you uh, navigate that? So, um, you know, my other hat is archivist. So I, uh, I work in the historic record and the gaps in the historic record all the time. Um, certainly women's lives is not documented in the public record in the same way as men's lives. So um, we are looking into records where we can know uh, about them at all. Sometimes it's a challenge to know their first name, their Mrs. So-and-so, um, throughout the public record. Um, so we do have to dwell in the private record, and we have to hope that their correspondence, their journals, their diaries, and, and any other sort of details of their lives is saved to begin with. And then if they've, we, so we don't, it, the bigger, larger problem to me is not that they're self-editing, it's that they've been edited um, out. So there's that. So first you have that. And then the fact that they may be uh, editing themselves um, is also an issue. But um, I think it's just a matter of working harder, to be honest. Um, I don't know. It, it, maybe that's a little hopeful, but um, I think if we're if we're if we decide this story is important to tell in whatever way we can find the story, 
then we can tell it. We have to not overassume and not, you know, misinterpret or, or or jump to conclusions. But we, but if we decide it's important, I think it's there to be told. Thank you. Well, thank you again, everyone. Thank you to our two panelists, Dr. Ferentinos and Lori. Thank you, everyone here, for a great conversation. Um, I want everyone to note that we do have handouts in the back. It has a very, very selected bibliography for you to read just to get your feet wet, and a lot of it is dealing with Jane Addams um, and what they decided to go through. Um, there is a fantastic scholarly paper on Eleanor Roosevelt um, back there, too, that's a good read um, written from the scholarly point of view. Um, and then, of course, we obviously recommend interpreting LGBT history. <laughs> There's an order form back there, and if you order through the, the booth here, um, you get 30% off of that. So it has these case studies and a lot of other case studies too, um, and it's all LGBT history, not just lesbian, not just female friendships, um, and how other sites are choosing to interpret it. And they do, there are very, a lot of case studies that go forward past the 60s and 70s, post-gay pride movement, um, and how you can interpret LGBT issues that way too. Now that we're in this the different um, in this different on the different spectrum um, um, for homosexuality. And then again, if you are interested to coming on our tour, um, this is Michelle. She's from the Rochester Hills Museum. She gets a lot of these questions on her tour, and we are going to be doing the breakout exercise. And we're actually going to go through questions that she has, and we're going to start brainstorming on ways to answer those questions within um, house tours. So. And again, we're the Women's History Affinity Group. I encourage everyone to join, but uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.